Welcome to the Elisa Childers podcast, where we equip Christians to identify the core claims of historic Christianity, discern its counterfeits, and proclaim the gospel with clarity, kindness, and truth. And I'm so excited for you to get to hear the conversation that I had with Jeremiah Johnston about the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I think every Christian should be able to make a case for the resurrection of Jesus, whether you're an intellectual or not, whether you're into apologetics or not. And so if if you don't think you can really do that. And even if you think you can, this is a great episode for you because Jeremiah walked us through uh, different arguments for the resurrection and even is bringing to us through his new book that's about to come out, a brand new argument for the resurrection of Jesus. It's just a really powerful way to do pre-evangelism. If you want to share the gospel with people that might have intellectual obstacles in front of the gospel, maybe saying like, you know, miracles can't happen. Dead people don't come back to life. How could you possibly even know that a dead guy was raised back to life in the first century? So definitely there's lots of rich, great stuff in this episode. So I'm so excited to bring that to you. Um, my favorite part of this conversation was when I asked Jeremiah point blank, can you be a Christian and not believe that Jesus was bodily, physically raised from the dead? And his answer might surprise you. So stay tuned for that. Uh, But I want to do a couple of announcements for you. If you haven't subscribed to my brand new podcast with Natasha Crane called the Unshaken Faith Podcast, go subscribe to that. We have, you know, this, this podcast might be a little long sometimes. You don't have an hour to listen to deep dives on different topics, but the Unshaken Faith Podcast, we take cultural topics. We do bite-sized pieces, 15 to 20 minutes to help equip you to live your Christian faith boldly in this increasingly chaotic culture. So subscribe to the Unshaken Faith podcast for sure. And we just came back from our very first Unshaken conference. This happened in Dayton, Ohio last weekend with uh, Frank Turek, Natasha Crane, and myself. And, you know, somebody was asking me, like, what, why did you want to do this conference now? When there's definitely, you know, there's lots of apologetics conferences out there. And I think that when Natasha and I first envisioned this conference, what we really wanted it to be was not even marketed as an apologetics conference. We realized that when people hear, oh, it's an apologetics conference, they might think, well, that's all going to be over my head, or this is going to be stuff that just doesn't really relate with my life. But with the Unshaken Conference, our goal was to take the types of topics and issues that every Christian is facing right now, like radical gender theory, sexuality, social justice, these kinds of things, and just to equip the average Christian, like, here's what it is, here's what you need to know, and here's how you can live faithfully uh, to the Lord and live biblically in a culture that has just changed its mind on a lot of these things very suddenly, it seems. So I, I really am so encouraged. I think we accomplished that. We had so much great feedback. So many people came out. It actually exceeded our expectations. We had more people than we were expecting. So that was very exciting. If you want information on uh, the upcoming dates for the Unshaken Conference, go to unshakenconference.com. We're going to be in Southern California uh, the first weekend of May. We're going to be in Nashville on November 4th, this coming fall, and we're about ready to release our fourth location, which I'm very excited about. So unshakenconference.com to find out more about that. And without any further ado, I'm just going to bring you into this conversation that I had with our good friend Jeremiah Johnson on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
So I'd like to introduce you to my guest for today. He's been on the podcast before, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston. He's a New Testament scholar who's called to equip Christians to love God with all their hearts and minds. And he models that very well, by the way. Um, he's the pastor of uh, apologetics and cultural engagement at Prestonwood Baptist Church. And he's coming out with a brand new book. It's called The Seven Best Reasons to Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus and Why It Matters Today. Now, this book is important because it's written in a way that it's easy to understand. It has uh, ways that you can engage with your friends and loved ones about the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a brand new argument for the resurrection of Jesus that we're going to let you know about today on the podcast. Now, this is coming out March of 2023. The foreword is written by Dr. Gary Habermas, who is known by many to be an expert on the resurrection. He's been on our podcast before. So, Jeremiah, so glad to have you back on the podcast. <laughs> Excited about this book. Lisa, it's so great to be back with you. Thank you for your ministry. Thank you for this wonderful program. Uh, I so appreciate all the opportunities to talk to you and to continue to learn from you and your ministry. So thanks for having me back. Well, always a joy. And I'm really excited about your book called Body of Proof. That's a great title, by the way. Um, Thank you. I know that you've, you're, you have such a broad scope of knowledge on so many different topics that you were on the podcast to talk about archaeology, you're a New Testament scholar, and, uh, but, but you were sharing with me before we came on the air that kind of your bread and butter, your main area of expertise is the resurrection of Jesus. And so uh, this book, of course, being about the resurrection, talk to us about what led you to write this book and, and why you chose now to do that and what you're hoping to accomplish with it. That's such a great question, Elisa. The center of the Christian worldview is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I am concerned that in modern Christianity today, the resurrection of Jesus is understudied and it's underpreached. In fact, I want to invite our audience. Think about it. When's the last time you heard a series? I don't mean an Easter sermon or a funeral sermon, but when's the last time you heard a series of sermons and teachings on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. Uh, I can't remember when I have, and many are there as well. And so for me and my own growth in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, I came to a point where, yes, I believed in the resurrection of Jesus. I came to Christ when I was seven years of age, but I couldn't tell you why I believed it. I couldn't offer those evidences of why I believe a Jewish criminal 2,000 years ago physically came back from the dead. And for me, uh, this is part of my calling. It's part of what launched our ministry, Christian Thinkers Society. Um, I ended up with my wife, Audrey, and our 12-week-old baby at the time in Oxford in 2009 to study the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus in a doctoral program. I've been studying it seriously at the highest level since 2009. And Elisa, you're talking to someone right now who's heard every argument there is right mm -hmm. now against the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, and I'm utterly unpersuaded by all of them. In fact, I find myself today, years later, uh, deep in this research, I've, I've, I've shared these at academic conferences, my research, I've published academically for houses like Oxford University Press, 
Bloomsbury, TNT Clark, Macmillan Interdisciplinary Handbook on the Philosophy of Religion. I've published somewhere around 200,000 words or so, give or take a few, on academically on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And guess what? I'm more iron-fisted today than I ever have been that Jesus physically bodily rose from the grave. That's the best way to interpret the body of proof or the evidence for his resurrection body. And so it's compelling. I also, as you know, because we've become friends, I have a heart for Christians. Yeah, I have a heart for believers to articulate their faith in an informed and conversant manner. And this is where my wife, Audrey, is such a blessing in my life. She says, Jeremiah, that's great that we know that, but how does that apply to me as a mom of five with triplets? I'm busy. Yeah. Um, you know, she's been mom tired for six years since the triplets were born. Give oh. me application of why these seven reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus help me follow Jesus more closely, help me make more of an impact on my family. And so um, this is book number 12 or 13 for me. I'm really working hard as an author and as a Christian thinker to make sure I always attach an application with an evidence that I offer for the Christian faith. I want there to be, and there is incredible evidences for the resurrection of Jesus. We're going to dig in together today, but I'm going to do my best also to guide you by the hand of why does this even matter? How does this help me grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ right now? How does this help me reach my family or friends or perhaps a son or a daughter who might be wandering or just wanting to own their own faith? Yeah. And so that's why we added that, why it matters today. And Elisa, I'll just kick off with this. Every sermon in the book of Acts talks about the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. There are 300 passages in the New Testament highlighting the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. This is not a sidebar issue. It is central to our faith. We need to know it better. And guess what? There's great reasons to believe in the body of proof of Jesus' physical bodily resurrection. So I want to highlight the way that you talk about the resurrection is very important. I've noticed that every time you mention the resurrection, you say the physical bodily <laughs> resurrection. And sadly, we're living in a culture where you need all three of those words yeah. because, you know, in the, the movement of progressive Christianity, which I engage with quite a bit in my work, um, it can be very confusing for a lot of Christians because you might hear a progressive Christian author say something like, oh, I believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And that leads people to think, oh, well, then we're on the same page, right? We believe the same things. And that might be true. There, you know, the person who's saying that might believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. But very often people might say something like, I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe Jesus was resurrected. But when you ask further questions, really what they mean is that it was a, a spiritual resurrection, or maybe the spirit of Jesus appeared to the apostles and encourage them in their faith. Or maybe it was a metaphor for seasons in our life of dying and rising. Maybe it didn't really happen. And maybe that doesn't really matter, but we can still learn from the life and the teachings of Jesus. And we hear a lot of that type of talk these days. And so before we get into the actual evidence, um, and I do, as we go along, want to engage with that, like how we can answer yes. our friends who might say that doesn't really matter. But first, you know, why is it so important that it was his actual body that went into the tomb and his actual body that rose from the dead? Why can't it just be a, a metaphor or, or a spiritual vision or something? Let me take you back to a freezing cold day in December of 2012 in Oxford. I was being examined in my Viva Voce, this is the, with living voice in Latin, by the great scholar William Telford, a scholar in the Gospel of Mark, a disciple of William Barclay, 
uh, for the benefit of our audience. Uh, a lot of pastors quote from William Barclay's Bible backgrounds, but they forget that he didn't believe in the miraculous at mm. all. Um, so it's interesting. Here you have a Bible scholar who's great on Bible backgrounds, but doesn't believe in the miraculous at all. It's important for you to know that because one of his disciples, William, uh, excuse me, Bill Telford, comes to uh, Oxford, takes the train in, and Elisa for three and a half years in Oxford. I had been hammered. We don't care what you believe. Don't privilege the Bible. That was something the Brits were really fond of saying. They hate the word inerrancy, by the way, too. It's mm-hmm. just they, they don't hate it. It's just not culturally acceptable. They see mm-hmm. that as an Americanism. But they right. said, don't privilege the text. And Jeremiah, please, we don't care what you believe. This is uh, dispassionate research, another word they would say. Um, just carry out your argument. And it's pass-fail in the UK. So if you do a PhD in, in England, and you fail, you get an MPhil, and you can never repeat a PhD on that subject ever again. It's different than the German and the American system. So Mm. first question I'm asked is what you just asked me. Bill Telford Mm. says, Jeremiah, and he's speaking in Latin. I don't know half the words he's using because I'm not a Latin scholar, but he's complimenting the fact that my thesis had so few errata or core agenda, to use his words. So I didn't know what was where this question was going. And he said, I just have one question. He had a big British bow tie on, just a <laughs> great chap, glasses, you know, in, in the corner of his mouth. He said, do you actually believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus? And then he started shaking his head. He said, or is that just imaginative storytelling on the part of the gospel writers? I said, Professor Telford, the evidence leads me to believe, yes, Jesus physically bodily rose from the grave. And do you know how you responded to me, Elisa? He said, he paused. He said, I don't see it that way. Let's start your viva. Wow. And so is it imaginative storytelling? Can you be a follower of Jesus and not believe in a physical body that was brought back to life? And I love the point you make in your scholarship about progressive Christianity and cults. And Elisa, you do this so well. The cults, the made in America religions, which now I would include progressive Christianity mm-hmm. in that category, they use what I call equivocation. Uh, they equivocate. They use the same words that Orthodox Christians use, but they have a whole different meaning. And you have pointed this out. And so, yes, it matters that Jesus physically bodily rose from the grave, no matter if you have a friend tell you this or a scholar in Oxford, because it 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 ties into the deeply embedded theological arc of the Scripture that our resurrection, Jesus's resurrection is first fruits. Our physical bodily resurrection is coming, and it doesn't end there. The entire cosmos, the physical world will be recreated. Every wrong made right. Heaven and earth will come together in a new heaven, a new earth, a new physicality uh, that the scripture says, eye is not seen, ear is not heard, nor is entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. And so, yes, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus matters. It matters theologically. It matters with theodicy. That is that is the problem of evil. It matters because uh, the scriptures say his body was physical. They make that clear. And I would cite Tom Wright's 500-page magisterial mm-hmm. work, The Resurrection of the Son of God. He takes 500 words to explain every, every place you see body, it means a physical body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I'll that's try to really make great. my answer shorter. No, Sorry. no, this is good stuff. <laughs> this is great. Uh, you know, back a few years ago, I audited uh, a seminary class on the Book of Acts, mm-hmm. 
And what really stood out to me when I was studying the book of Acts was how the apostles, when they would go out and preach, they weren't primarily going out saying, look, this is how Jesus touched my heart, or this is, you know, this or that, or kind of personal testimony kind of stuff. They were giving testimony, their eyewitness testimony, but they always brought it back to the resurrection. Even Paul on Mars Hill, when he's talking to the pagan philosophers and he's, everything he's doing is to bring it back to the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And it really just jumped out at me that the apologetics that Paul and others were doing in the book of Acts was really, so much of it was surrounding the resurrection. And I think the resurrection is such an important thing. Um, I have a good friend where we like to study apologetics together and my friend TC, and she says, you know, every Christian should be able to defend the resurrection of Jesus. If nothing else, be able right. to defend the resurrection of Jesus. And that's such a core important issue. And I think in our culture that's becoming increasingly more confused, you know, and especially with the lines being blurred of was it bodily or was it spiritual? Does it matter? It does matter. And and so I want to ask you, you know, this is kind of a point blank question here, but can someone rightfully call themselves a Christian if they don't believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus? I want to say this compassionately, and I want to say this um, as a friend, and I want to say it empathetically, because many have been raised in churches that are mainline. They don't believe the scriptures or the word of God, and so this is going to be a new thing for them to say. So I want to say it pastorally. We cannot be a follower of Jesus and not believe in the physical, bodily resurrection. Um, that is, they cancel each other out. Without the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, there is no Christianity. You take away the resurrection of Jesus and all of Christianity falls. I want to be yeah. very clear on that. And so we're not here hyping Jesus as a great moral teacher or someone that we want to emulate in our life because he loved people and turned the other cheek or because he used wonderful maxims in his teaching. We are following Jesus because of a physical event in history that because of that event, the entire world is changing and will change. Mm -hmm. And of course, that event is that first Easter morning. You brought up the book of Acts. I'm fascinated because Luke, that's his sequel. Luke writes the book of Acts and he also writes the gospel of Luke. He uses a fascinating word in his incipit. That's a Latin meaning beginning. Um, in, the, in the old school, you wouldn't go to a library and you wouldn't grab a book, you would grab a scroll. And so you had to make sure the first lines of that scroll caught your attention because mm. they're not going to unravel it. Very different than our modern age when you can do this to a book. Right. And if you open up the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke says, we were eyewitnesses. He uses this word autoptes. That might sound familiar because it's the word we get autopsy from. Luke says we had a front row seat and saw many convincing things. Um, he goes right to the resurrection and he pivots off the resurrection and he gives us his magisterial work of Luke Acts. And so it's essential it's hard to hear for some, I know that. So if you've not made your personal decision for Jesus Christ, you can make it right now by trusting in Jesus as your Savior, trusting in the full gospel, the only gospel there is. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. That is the gospel, and without it, there is no gospel. That's right. That's very good. And you mentioned earlier 
the concept of imaginative storytelling that you're, when you went in to give your thesis and they, they offered that it might have just been imaginative storytelling. I mean, it seems to me that it would have been very difficult for Christianity to get off the ground if it was just mm-hmm. imaginative storytelling. Um, and, and one of the things that, that you touch on in your book, which is I'm really interested in right now, I'm kind of fascinated by this idea because sometimes skeptics, when you mention the resurrection, they might say something like, well, the, the disciples were just trying to save face or they were trying to redeem the whole thing by making up this story of a resurrection. You know, they thought Jesus was going to do all these things and then he died. So they had to kind of make good out of it. Um, but but you point out in your book that that's that that would be very out of character uh, for the Jewish mindset uh, from back then. Talk a little bit about that and how you might answer that if somebody said, well, it's just imaginative storytelling. Yeah. The way that we answer this question thinks, oh, the gospel writers were just making it up. If they made up the resurrection stories that are embedded in the four gospels, they did a terrible job. Um, we have female witnesses that not only witness Jesus' resurrection, females are the first to touch him, to dine with him. Um, you wouldn't start there if you knew anything about uh, Greco-Roman Empire and even even the, even Jews in Judaica, you wouldn't begin there. I mean, I think of Rabbi Judah who said, better to burn the Torah than teach it to a woman. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not agreeing with that, obviously. Right. I'm just saying you, we, have to, we have to see the New Testament world with first century eyes. It is so important that we understand that we don't import a modern Jesus or a modern Western understanding into the first century understanding. And that's why in my book, Body of Proof, I wanted to lay out these seven reasons. And you're asking me one of the best questions right now. What if it is imaginative storytelling? What do we say to that? Well, in Luke chapter 24, verse 21 the uh, on the road to Emmaus, and I've been there in the land of Israel. In fact, I've been at the, the tombs near the town of Emmaus. Um, the one of them we actually have their name, so we have eyewitness testimony here. Cleopas, um, they don't realize they're walking with the resurrected Jesus, and they said they're dejected. They said, you know, we had hoped he was the re- he was the Messiah, but you know, he died, and it's done. There's a finality to it. They have truly given up, and they they're walking seven miles home. And also see the symbolism, they're walking away from this faith as well. No one expected the Messiah to die, Elisa. And this is where I want to really help our audience as a professor. We open up Isaiah 53 today in our scriptures, and it just seems so clear that Mm -hmm. this is the coming suffering servant. Very few Jews in Jesus's day would have interpreted Isaiah 53 the way that we see it now with the historical and theological hindsight. In fact, If we go to sources that I know you've taught your audience about, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, 4Q285, and other scrolls as well, that just means Qumran K4, scroll 285, we see that there are actual prophecies in the Dead Sea Scrolls community that when Messiah comes, not only would he be a great conqueror, he would kill the Katim, he would kill the Romans, that was their name for the Romans, he would even kill the Roman emperor. He would not die on a cross. No one expected Messiah to die. And this is why it's fascinating. And I know we've discussed it at one of our recent conferences with our colleague and friend, Craig Evans. There were many Messianic pretenders in the first year, first two centuries of nascent Christianity. Yeah. They were contenders or pretenders. Jesus wasn't the only one who went around and said, hey, I'm the Messiah. Follow me. Others did. In fact, we have two that are named in the book of Acts and their following went away. 
The only reason that Christianity carried on, and I want to make sure our audience doesn't miss this fact, is because of the resurrection. All they did was report what actually happened because it really did, and that started the movement. Um, Mm. When we talk about Christianity, yes, we can talk about experiencing God, and we should, but we also should never forget that there is a content to be believed. It's not just all experiential. Faith is used in two ways in the New Testament. Yes, we have an experience with God, absolutely. But make no mistake, there is facts, as J.I. Packer famously said in a sermon on Romans 7 and 8, we trust in the facts of the gospel, and that content doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, those facts of the resurrection of Jesus literally birthed the new church that changed the world. Yeah, you mentioned the conference we were at together, and it was such a joy to get to hang out with all of you guys, and Sean McDowell was there, and Alan Parr, and um, I just remember being in the green room sitting next to Craig Evans, uh, who, you know, I've I've just looked up to and admired so much of his work for so Me long. Too. And Yeah, and he was talking about those messianic figures that sort of came and went, and what really was fascinating to me, and I hope that I will be able to articulate this accurately as he told it to me, um, I'd love to get him on the show to even talk more about it, but it's not just that we have these theoretical pretenders, right? As you mentioned, the book of Acts even mentions a couple by name, but he mentioned one by name that, and and he was talking about the Jewish response to it. And not only was their instinct not to try to redeem the whole thing or, you know, smooth it all over and make this guy into some kind of Messiah, but with one of them, when he died, if I'm remembering this accurately, they even changed his name to include Mm -hmm. some sort of a connotation of being an actual liar. I mean, that was the Jewish response. Had Jesus not raised from the dead, uh, all indication we have from history is that they would have turned on him and he would have been a liar in in their eyes. And that was such powerful to me evidence for the resurrection because I'd never heard something like that before. Well, and that's a great point that, again, many of us don't know until we really study these things at serious uh, levels. And, And part of reason number two In my book, Body of Proof, I actually point out some of these uh, additional Messianic pretenders. I said we had 10. Uh, The Gospels record Thutis in Acts 5.38. And then we also hear in AD 56 about this anonymous Egyptian. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness? Well, that's Acts 21.38. And so we have to give um, people credit in the first century. These people were not morons. They would not have followed somebody that was a charlatan, a liar, or a fake. And again, I cannot make this clear enough. They certainly would not have made up a resurrection narrative if it wasn't true. How can we say that? Nobody believed in physical bodily resurrection outside of Jews in the first century who believed in a coming general resurrection. And this is where we have to be so careful. Nobody thought that Jesus was physically or a Messiah was going to die and rise again. This was something that was going to happen eschatologically speaking at the end of days. Um, Why would you start your narrative there if it didn't really happen and if nobody would have believed it to begin with? And so we have to ask ourselves these questions like you're asking about these messianic contenders. No, they wouldn't have followed him. They would rename him. He's not the son of the star. He's a liar. Um, You know, and so we have to understand that. And then you're getting into something, too. There's there's no psychological motivation to make up a resurrection narrative, which is one of my points in the book as well. Well, 
Well, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Jeremiah Johnston on the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. I wanted to pop in here really quickly and let you know about something new we're doing this year. We're bringing on some carefully and prayerfully selected sponsors. Now, many of you have asked about how to support the podcast. This is a great way to help support the podcast and get a great product in return. So today's sponsor is Good Ranchers. Now, back when COVID hit in 2020, I signed up for a meat subscription service, you know, meat that's delivered right to your door. And it was okay. It was fine. And then I found out later that all of the meat from this quote unquote American company was coming from overseas. And because of some of the laws and the way you, you can get around things, as long as it's packaged in the United States, it can say that it's an American product. But I was kind of bummed out because I thought, I thought I was supporting American farms, but that turned out to not be the case. Well, along comes good ranchers who are Christian people. They have biblical values and they really care about American farmers. So all of the meat from good ranchers is coming from American farms. This is all American grown. There's no none of the junk in there. And um, and honestly, guys, it's just, it's really, really good. We've made the chicken. We've made the steaks. We have really been enjoying using Good Ranchers. In fact, right now, upstairs, as I work on this right now, I've got ground beef thawing out so that I'm going to make um, sloppy joes for my kids tonight. And that's, you know, I don't share a lot about my personal life on this podcast, but one of the things I really love to do is cook. It's really important to me to, you know, at least uh, three or four nights a week to have dinner on the table and doesn't have to be gourmet. doesn't have to be something super fancy, but when it's just waiting for you right there in the freezer and you know that it's coming from a company that has integrity where it's good for American farmers and there's biblical values behind it. I mean, it's a no brainer. So if you want to try good ranchers, go to goodranchers.com slash Alisa. Uh, you have to mention that code to make sure you get the discount, which is $30 off of any box you order in the month of February. So the, again, that's goodranchers.com slash Alisa. Good Ranchers American Meat Delivered. You know, we're talking a lot about facts surrounding the resurrection, arguments for the resurrection, but there is such a deep and great hope we have as Christians, just even in in uh, our spiritual lives and our emotional lives. I think of, uh, you know, it's really not that we're just sitting here like trying so hard to believe in a miracle of the resurrection so that we can be Christians. We have this deep and great hope. And my family experienced this, uh, you know, quite mm. profoundly when we had a family tragedy with the death of my nephew, a good friend of mine, her brother had passed away very suddenly. And we wow, talked about this, brother. that it's the resurrection of Jesus that gave me hope at the funeral to know that one day that body is going to come out of that grave, right? One day mm -hmm. I will see Amen. him again. And that is the great hope. And if it's just a spiritual resurrection, if it's just a metaphor, then we don't have that, that great hope. And I think that's something that is so great about how your book touches on um, just the, the people who are paralyzed with grief or um, they've experienced some kind of loss. And you really offer hope for those who are hurting. So this isn't just... Uh, you know, mechanical apologetics. Here's your arguments. Talk no. about um, the the hope you do offer to those who are really hurting in their lives. My little sister Jenny Lee Mulliken and her husband Jeff have three children. Uh, actually, a fourth is almost here. Uh, their third child, Wesley, died as a stillborn baby, mm. um, and about two years ago, when I was starting to work on this book in a serious way, and I actually write about Wesley. I say his name. We speak his name in the present, as Jenny Lee, my little sister, wrote in a blog. 
Um, you know, losing a child is the worst grief that yeah. anyone can experience. And Jenny Lee wrote in a moment of true faith, she said, I know the first time our son opened his eyes, he saw Jesus. And never far from my mind was Jenny Lee and Jeff, the grief that they have mm -hmm. experienced losing a son, going through that, going through the stupid comments that people will make yeah. the, that, you know, just don't, that don't know any better, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And the one fact and truth that kept Jenny Lee and Jeff going is exactly what you just pointed out. Yes, we grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. Right. We know Wesley is alive today in the presence of Jesus, and we will see Wesley again. That is the promise of Scripture. And in a beautiful way, as the Lord works, Jenny was not sure if she would get pregnant again, didn't know if she could. They have two beautiful daughters. She's now pregnant again. They're expecting a little boy. Now, he won't replace Wesley, but isn't God good when we think about how God works in our lives? And, yeah. you know, I've been with many people. Lisa, you know, people need to pray for uh, ministries like ours because we tend to hear everyone's worst story. I don't know if you've noticed this on the road. And then we have to go back to the motel room and try to turn it off, not internalize it. You know, someone wants a 30-second answer from us. Uh, about a, 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 they've been stricken with grief. And yeah. the word I always go back to is the promise of resurrection. Hebrews in the New Testament 5.8 said that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Now think about that for a moment. If Jesus, and when we talk, we can talk about crucifixion if you want, the most heinous, shameful way to die mm -hmm. ever invented. If Jesus experienced obedience through suffering, it tells me that he can identify with me as my great high priest when I'm suffering. Right. He has suffered even under the point of death, and he died. He suffered the worst death you could suffer. And so Jesus can identify with me when I'm hurting, when I'm pained, when I'm anxious or depressed or have anxiety or truly are experiencing grief. I love it that the scriptures don't hide this kind of narrative that even the Son of God learned obedience through mm -hmm. suffering. And so that brings, a, that brings this message to a whole new light for me. We serve a God of hope, and we are the people who bring hope. Yeah. And the resurrection is not only the key to our ethics, it's not only the key to our theology and our worldview, it's the key to our hope. First Thessalonians 4 is perhaps my favorite passage. We grieve, but we don't grieve without hope. And that's a yeah. promise we can stand on. Yeah, there's this great quote by by John Stott who talks about um, God, you know, becoming flesh and experiencing pain alongside of us. And I think that's something I like to think about too. When when you think about it, it is an existential problem for people to say, well, you know, there's this problem of evil we talk about where there's evil and suffering in the world. How could a good God allow that stuff to happen? Either he's not good or he's not powerful enough to stop it, right? And I often think, I don't think we're thinking that question through deeply enough because not only, he doesn't really, you know, there are other religions, and this is what I'm going to read this quote from John Stott because he kind of touches on it, that other religions will sort of offer an answer, like the Buddhist detachment or something like this. But mm -hmm. only Christianity gives you a God who literally became the answer himself, stepping into his creation, God in flesh, and then experiencing all of that along, you know, alongside of us, the pains, the sufferings. He experienced death of loved ones. He, he went through right. these types of griefs and I often think, too, when we think about the cross, we tend to only think about the physical element, right? Because it's horrific. I mean, who could imagine mm -hmm. dying in such a physically excruciating way? But I wonder, 
um, if the the spiritual and emotional strain of that was not even worse. You know, he who knew no sin became sin. Uh, mm. And and it's like, I, I often think about, I don't know if we could even fully comprehend that, but, you know, John Stott said, I mm. could never myself believe in a God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In a real world of pain, who could worship a god who was immune to it? And then he talks about right. Buddhist temples where you have the Buddha statue so uh, disconnected and detached from the real pain and agony of the world. Um, but he says mm. the cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in such a world as ours. Um, and that's what it symbolizes. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. Uh, but to our mm. wounds, only God's wounds can speak and not a god who has and, and no, not a God has wounds, uh, but thou alone. And so talking about Christ, and you mentioned Isaiah 53, uh, the suffering servant, right? I didn't mean to start preaching a sermon there, but it just, oh, I love it. you know, there's so much, um, I hope people understand when apologists are talking about re- evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, this isn't an intellectual exercise. Like this is, this is real life and death. And when it comes to situations where we're suffering with those questions of life and death, the resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that really gives us hope. And so that's why I think it's really important that we can also intellectually defend it and be able to engage with people about it, uh, which brings us back to your wonderful book. So uh, how? let's talk about the three facts that skeptics can all agree are true, because we might have friends and loved ones in our lives who might say, well, I'm not just going to believe something because the Bible says it. So how might we engage with that and maybe offer the three facts that skeptics might agree about? So skeptics all agree that there was someone named Jesus who lived, without a doubt. Uh, we know that for sure. That That's not saying anything because I'm a Christian. That's just a fact of history. Uh, Jesus' death by Roman crucifixion is the best attested fact of the ancient world. In fact, Bart Ehrman points out 15 sources within 100 years of the life of the historical Jesus, four of which are not in the scriptures, that speak to the established fact that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. And then scholars also agree that the tomb was empty and disciples had experiences. I think of the great scholar Ed Sanders, E.P. Sanders. He wrote Paul and Palestinian Judaism, uh, certainly not an evangelical uh, scholar, uh, but it was Ed Sanders who pointed out the followers of Jesus had experiences of the physically resurrected Messiah, and these experiences utterly transform their life. And so I want you to know, skeptics, they they yield those points. And you need to know these as a follower of Jesus, that Jesus' death by Roman crucifixion is indeed the best established fact of the ancient world. If we can't believe that Jesus existed, we shouldn't believe in any uh, facts of history, to be quite honest with you. In fact, I point out in Body of Proof that I have to, as a historian, appeal to Roman emperors for the same level of manuscript, textual, even archaeological evidence that we have for Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, can you believe that? Let that sink in for a moment. The same 
attestation that I have to believe in Jesus, the closest comparison would be Roman emperors. Uh, when you go to the land of Israel and you meet an archaeologist, many of which, fine people, by the way, fine, fine people, uh, many of which, though, they're atheists or agnostics. There are a few believers, great ones, like Scott Stripling, who I know has been on your program, Lisa, uh, but most of them are not. Most of them are either atheist or agnostic Jewish scholars. It's fascinating to me, though, because they will use five books to make sure they're digging in the right spot. Uh, the dig season happens twice a year. There's somewhere around 200 digs that happen usually in the summertime and Christmas break in the land of Israel. But why? That's when volunteers, college kids will come at their own expense to serve for free. Um, these, these atheist agnostic archaeologists, they will use Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Book of Acts, and, oh, Josephus. So there's six uh, that they will use. And so this is because the scriptures, they exhibit verisimilitude with what the world was really like in Jesus's day. Mm -hmm. And so I want to make sure that you appreciate these facts that even skeptics agree on. And I point those out uh, in even more detail and body of proof. Right. So we have kind of uh, this this approach where we can offer some facts that everybody pretty much agrees on and then analyze that and come to a conclusion. Um, and, and that's, you know, I know Gary Habermas has a version of that called minimal facts. And then there, there are different, you know, versions of that or different lists of those facts. Um, but there there's there's something really powerful about knowing that this is something that we can investigate in history, right? Even us going to church on Sunday morning. There's a historical connection to the resurrection with that, isn't there? Absolutely. And uh, many have pointed this out. Christianity is the only religion that actually has apologetics. We are not deconstructing other people's beliefs in, with a negative apologetic saying, mm -hmm. oh, I don't like you because of your political beliefs, or I don't like you because of where you're from. We can actually offer positive apologetics, meaning we believe this because dot, 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 there is evidence. And so mm -hmm what you believe. Do you have evidence that backs it up? And, you know, I have so appreciate Professor Habermas. He calls me Jeremy. He's known me for 25 years. You got to really know me a long time to call me Jeremy. Uh, he's known me a long time. He's been a mentor and he's done such a great job uh, bringing St. Paul to the forefront as the earliest resurrection witness. I'm a gospel scholar, Elisa. You know, a PhD, we know a lot about a little. Mm. And the area that I know a lot about, the little I know a lot about, is the gospels and the historical Jesus, the resurrection. I want to bring the resurrection accounts and the gospels back into the forefront as well as equally great sources with the Apostle yeah. Paul. And that's why I rolled out these seven facts or these seven reasons, I call them. Mm -hmm. And I think they're the best. And that comes right out of my academic research. And they're easy to remember, and they build on top of one another. And so I would just encourage Christians, we have to know about the resurrection. It's going to bring you joy. It's going to bring you peace, the shalom of God. It's going to allow you to encourage and comfort those who are struggling and suffering. And it's going to bolster your worldview. But I want to guide you by the hand in about three hours of reading, where after you read this, you're going to you're going to be totally up to date with the scholarship of where we stand. I mean, many are unaware that six different denominations control the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I get in this mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the book. I have a short, about three thousand word chapter on the archaeology of the resurrection and the crucifixion site. Um, and it's fascinating, many people don't know, just in 2017, after negotiating for years, the tomb, the edicule inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was open to Lisa for about 60 hours. 
everything they saw is what you would expect to find if we're talking about a first century tomb that's been wow. venerated probably by Constantine's mom in AD 325. It actually reaches back to the second century um, when after uh, the Jewish revolt, Bar Kokhba's revolt, um, there was such rampant anti-Semitism uh, that Hadrian comes in and other emperors as well, and they literally decimate these Christian sites. They put pagan shrines on top of them, but in effect, they preserve them for us. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of interesting how that worked yeah, out. Yeah. So. Um, I want people to be aware. I want the Christians who are watching, and you might have been a Christian a long time, and you believe in the resurrection because you learned it in Sunday school. I applaud you for that. Hold on to that belief. But man, know the latest evidences for our faith, and they keep coming out. The data is just that good. Well, speaking of latest evidence, in your book, you have a brand new argument for the resurrection. That's a very bold claim. I am excited to hear about. Uh, you heard, tell us about this brand new argument for the resurrection. Okay, so I build on it. Uh, reason number one is society is transformed everywhere. The resurrection mm -hmm. is taught. And I've, I've written an entire book on that called Unimaginable. I give 10 ways in which the world would be dramatically different. And reason number one um, if there was no resurrection. Reason number two is that Jesus called it on the third day. I mean, at least I joke mm -hmm. with audiences when I teach this. If the early church had a hashtag, it would be hashtag on the third day. Yeah. Uh, Jesus had this wonderful habit as Messiah where he would take these Old Testament passages, he would messianize them, which means he would apply them to himself as only the Messiah could do. And like for one, one example in my Bible open to Hosea 6.2, after two days, he will revive us on the third day, he will raise us up that we may be before him. Well, Jesus quotes Hosea 6, 2 and 3 throughout his messianic predictions of Mark 8, 31, Mark 9, 31, Mark 10, 33 and 34. Reason number three, Jesus adumbrates, I love this word, his future mm -hmm. resurrection. He, he gives us, uh, he foreshadows it by performing resurrections from the dead in the mm -hmm. Gospels. In the scriptures, we have eight resurrections, three in the Old Testament, three in the Gospels, two in the book of Acts. Jesus performs three of them, Jairus's daughter, the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7, and of course, Lazarus in John chapter 11. So he shows that he himself has power over death. So those three reasons, I think, are helpful. They build on one another. They all come from the Gospels. They're historical. Um, but reason number four is what is an original contribution to knowledge and from body of proof. And this rests on uh, about 12 years of academic research. The, dis the disciples are Jews. The first, the first Christians are Jews. The Jewish community, um, the best way to explain this, Elisa, would be uh, Judaism is a coherent religion, meaning they believed in a general resurrection someday. Elisa, if you were a great rabbi and uh, you blessed many people, you might have even performed miracles, and then you died as a martyr's death, um, we could honor you. In fact, um, we could even think about your writings and we could talk about what a great moral teacher you are. We see this in the apocryphal book of Second Maccabees. The widow's seven sons are all martyred in Second Maccabees. Um, and they're honored. I mean, this was a story Jesus would have been well aware of. It would have been a rallying call mm -hmm. uh, for Jews in the intertestamental period. But Elisa, if you're one of our rabbis and you died, um, we would have no reason to make up a story that you came back to life physically from the dead because yeah. we don't need it. We believe someday you'll be resurrected with us. 
We honor you as a great teacher. You may have thought you were the Messiah, and maybe you were, kind of. Uh, We have no psychological motivation to invent a resurrection narrative because Judaism doesn't need it. The religion is coherent, meaning we just don't need it. We don't need to go there. We could have everything but the resurrection and honor Jesus as a great prophet or honor you as a great teacher if we wanted to. Do you see what I mean? There's no psychological reason to come along and just make it so complicated, make it so ugly in the Jewish mindset. Yeah, it it almost seems like, you know, that idea that, you know, they, they would trying to be smoothing things over, making up a story to resurrect Jesus. Like, it's really kind of a modern, it, it, it actually wouldn't, you wouldn't even think of that skepticism if Christianity wasn't actually based on a resurrection, right? Because it's kind of like, exactly. if you didn't have that in the backdrop, even you probably wouldn't think to say, well, no. they should have him resurrect him. Like, nobody would think of it, right? No. And I mean, it, it just doesn't make sense. And we have to give the ancient community a little bit more credit. I mean, the, the, these were sophisticated people. They weren't going to follow, as Peter said, cleverly devised fables. No, they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And um, in the in this, the last chapter of the book, I build on it. I kind of this book is kind of like a video game. It starts easy, then it gets normal, and then it gets hard. <laughs> hard meaning, if I had to do two more PhDs, the last two chapters are what I would do two more mm. PhDs on. So, and one of those was if the I mean the, to say it more clearly, if the disciples invented the story of Jesus's resurrection, are you ready for this? <laughs> they did a terrible job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they were not creative if they did that. In fact, why can I say that? So really. Stay with me. My my scholarly hat, I'm an expert in second century Christianity, the extra canonical gospels. And the extra canonical gospels seem to come along and fill in all the gaps that the gospels, the canonical ones, seem to leave out. They mm-hmm. embellish details. Jesus is gigantic. Uh, polymorphic Christology. Second century Christianity comes along in a very unsophisticated attempt, and it and it would seem appears to add some apologetic fabrication to the first century gospels. The gospels themselves are restrained, sober narrative, which again, smacks of their authenticity. If you're making mm-hmm. something up, why would you make up a story where the disciples left the follower? I mean, left their leader. Right. Uh, you know, you just think you start laying this out. I mean, this was not a winning proclamation, as I've said before. The only reason it took heart uh, is because it actually happened. It's, a, yeah. it's truth. That's so great. So um, what sources beside the Bible would support the bodily resurrection of Jesus? The bodily resurrection of Jesus is supported by numerous sources outside of the Bible. In my book, I wanted to shortly introduce believers in Jesus Christ to Jewish burial traditions and customs. And it's so important that we understand something about Jewish burial traditions, because the skeptics today John Dominic Crossan, Bart Ehrman, and others say that Jesus' body was likely either A, just thrown in a criminal's mass burial pit, or B, his body was actually eaten by dogs, as Dom Crossan said. And I mean, that might be shocking for some people to hear that there are actual Bible scholars that say this. I've heard Bart Ehrman talk about that, yeah. Right. And so this is where I appeal not to scriptures, but to Jewish burial traditions. And within Jewish burial traditions, If the Sanhedrin condemned someone to death, it was upon the Sanhedrin to be responsible for a proper burial. Well, what do we see when we open up the juridical procedure in the gospel narratives? We see that there are two members of the Sanhedrin who request the body of Jesus, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. 
Why do they do that? Because that's consistent with Jewish burial traditions. It's very important that we also help believers understand that in the Jewish mindset, um, nobody would have forgotten where Jesus was born. Um, if you go to the land of Israel today and you step foot on the Mount of Olives, Lisa, there's 150,000 people buried on the Mount of Olives. I mean, burial was a sacred duty mm-hmm. in, in uh, late antiquity and late Second Temple Judaism, so much so that uh, in some of the rabbinic literature, uh, they're actually buried in these bone boxes facing the eastern gate where in the resurrection, they don't even need to turn around. Literally, they will be raised up straight, <laughs> yeah. straight line into the eastern gate. So, I mean, I'm making a point here, not on scripture, but using the archaeology of burial traditions that nobody would have forgotten where Jesus was buried. Did he receive an honorable burial? No. But was Jesus buried properly? Yes, he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, a new tomb that no one had ever been buried in before, so he could achieve a proper burial. Um, It's so important because there are some really wacky claims out there. In the first Mm -hmm. part of my book, I explain the claims against the resurrection. Like, did you know that there's a twin Jesus theory out there? I mean, the further you get away from the evidence. Now, I have triplets, and two of the triplets out of the three are identical. I just want to ask people, do you think mom Jesus, who's mentioned frequently as a, as a resurrection witness, would misplace which twin she was talking right. about? If in fact, and by the way, there's no evidence Jesus had a twin brother. Right. This is a complete argument from silence. But I can attest that my wife at all times can pick out the two twin boys uh, of our triplets. I mean, again, we, you know, there's the wrong tomb theory that they just kind of forgot where Jesus was buried and stumbled across a wrong tomb that was vacant. Really? You know, it gets further out. Do you see what happens mm-hmm. when we when we don't want to follow the evidence, but we want to make up our own new truth? It gets really wacky. So we it need does to be even now, uh, you know, thinking about the swoon theory where people will try to answer the evidence by saying, well, maybe Jesus just passed out, you know, and, yeah, and you're thinking really die. there's so many, you know, you just think about, first of all, they were professional executioners. And it, I mean, if Jesus came out of the tomb, having only had passed out, that would be a miracle because of all he went through physically being beaten and, and uh, you know, taken within an inch of his life and then embalmed with spices and wrapped. And like, that's, that's pretty amazing for a guy that physically yeah. injured to move a stone that one person couldn't even right. move by themselves, you know. So you're right, it does kind of get a little bit ridiculous. But, um, I, you know, with the, the couple of minutes that we have left here, I'd love for you to just address our audience and leave us with some encouragement, because I'll tell you, I, um, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I've just turned in a manuscript on deconstruction, the, 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 mm you know, just the phenomenon that we're seeing happen that's largely happening on social media. And I mentioned this uh, to our our friend, uh, Dr. Scott Stripling, who we talked about archaeology with, is that you go on some, something like TikTok, right? Which I'm not advocating TikTok. I'm just saying I had to go on there for res- uh, research. And you'll have somebody mm. that's got hundreds of thousands of followers. And all they have to do is take 20 seconds and they just have to be charming and funny and, and kind of mm-hmm. make some point that sounds good or mock Christians in some way that gets people to go, yeah, I agree with, you know, because they don't have long attention spans anyway. And, uh, you know, a lot of, I, I think it might have been Chester 
Kitchen who said that a lie gets halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes because often it takes a minute to explain some of these things. But with the hyper skepticism that our, our culture is steeped in right now, they're, they're even skeptical if you take too long to answer. It's like, well, why are right. you taking so long to answer? And there's like a suspicion. And so I, feel, I know there's so many Christians that are feeling beat over the head with this stuff. You know, how can we live our faith in this world that is just mocking us? And uh, and it seems like that verse that says, see how the wicked prosper. It's like, I've, I've said that out of my walks, like, see how the wicked prosper. You just see it over and over again. Um, but the resurrection of Jesus is our great hope. So why don't you leave our audience with some encouragement today? I will. And, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, Elisa. In the second and third centuries, there were objectors who had major followings, people like their names are Porphyry and Celsus, who ridiculed and attacked the early Christian movement for its seemingly lowbrow, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding me. You think we can believe Jesus rose again? You have female witnesses. I mean, right. who would believe that? Why didn't Jesus appear to the Roman leaders? Why didn't he appear to the Jewish high priests and the leading men of his day? And so we see that history repeats itself. There are always going to be loud objectors. So I believe Satan demonically empowers mm. to speak against our faith. And guess what? In the second and third century, Christianity won because Christians outthought everybody around mm. them. And I'm praying that God will raise up a new generation of believers. And I thank God for your ministry, Elisa, teaching us to do this to outthink our objectors and our detractors. We can do so with grace, and we should. We need to do so in winsome ways, but we have to be armed with the truth of God's Word, the truth of the evidences that undergird the truth claims of Christianity. Unfortunately, we do live in a time there where individuals, and I do these secular media programs, I mean, they prefer sound bites over substance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. all day long. They want the hot take on Twitter. And I don't live my life by hot takes. I don't let um, one-liners influence me. I don't believe in bumper sticker theology. Memes. I believe in truth. Yeah. Truth yeah. is evident. And if truth is true, it demands our efforts. It demands us to think critically and think Christianly. And so I would just appeal to First Peter chapter 1, where Paul or Peter makes it clear that even for those that are suffering, you don't suffer in vain. Your salvation is guarded by God himself in heaven because of the resurrection from mm -hmm. the dead. Well, thanks for listening today. I really hope you feel more equipped to have conversations about the resurrection of Jesus and that you've learned something new. If you want to further your education in topics like the ones we go into on this podcast, I've said this before, but I so highly recommend Southern Evangelical Seminary. They're now a sponsor of the podcast as well. So you can go to ses.edu slash Elisa, download a free ebook, check out the different programs they have. They have lay programs, higher education programs. I just can't say enough. You all know I love Southern Evangelical Seminary. I'm currently a student taking intro to philosophy right now. So go to ses.edu slash Elisa. Of course, if you're watching on YouTube, subscribe, uh, click the bell icon to be notified every time we release a new video that will help keep you informed. Uh, if you're listening on audio platforms like Google, Apple, Spotify, leaving a great review, rating, reviewing, sharing on social media, all of that helps to get the word out. And as always, as we stand for Christ in this culture, let's remember to keep a sharp mind, a soft heart, and a thick skin. We'll see you next time.